with compassion and tears of mercy. He gave food to the hungry, life to the dying, clothes to the poor, forgiveness to his enemies, and comfort to the fearful. Who is this but Jesus, our Messiah? You're listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Visit us at holyjoys.org to find more resources for a holy, happy church. We've been reading the Bible together as a church, and this past week we read the Joseph story in Genesis 37 through 50. Uh, I'm going to assume this morning that you are familiar with that story, and I'm going to be drawing from these chapters, but I want to begin by reading just one verse in Genesis 37. Genesis 37, verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. This is the word of the Lord. For several years now, I've been wrestling with the question, how do we get more out of our Bible reading? How do we get more out of our Bible reading? Has anyone ever asked that question? Anyone ever feel stuck? I just wish I could see more. Well, I've come to the conclusion that what we see depends largely on what we are looking for. What we see depends largely on what we are looking for. So let's say that Janessa goes home and she pulls a cookbook off the uh, shelf and she's flipping through it. And the question in the back of her mind is, which recipe would make a quick and easy meal for my family tonight? She might notice a few crockpot recipes. She might notice some soups, maybe lasagna. But let's say that later that week, Josh grabbed that same cookbook off the shelf and he flipped through it. But the question in the back of his mind was, which recipe would make a good dessert for after dinner tonight? Now, he might flip through the very same pages in the very same book, but he would probably notice very different recipes. In fact, he would probably be oblivious to all of the soups and the crockpot meals in that book. What we see largely depends on what we are looking for. This is why some people say that the best place to hide something is in plain sight. It's amazing how much we can miss if we aren't looking for it. When you read the Bible, what are you looking for? What question is in the back of your mind as you open the Bible and flip through its pages? Now, if I had to guess, I would say that it's something like this. How does this passage apply to my Christian life? What does God want me to do or not do in my Christian life? Now, that is a very important question to ask. The Bible does teach us how to lead a virtuous life. And in the Joseph story, we find a beautiful moral message about a life of faith and forgiveness in suffering. However, 
If this is the only question that you ever have in the back of your mind when you read, you will probably be oblivious to many things in Scripture. And I would go as far as to say you will probably be oblivious to the most important things in Scripture. Not only that, but you'll probably get pretty bored with your Bible reading. You see, the Bible is not most fundamentally a book about you or me. When I was in high school, I worked at the Seals Grove Wise Markets, and there was a Carly Simon song that seemed to play a thousand times a week. You're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you, don't you? Anybody ever hear that? It's not vain to look for the moral of the story in the Bible. But sometimes we think that every verse is about us, don't we? Don't we? Especially when those verses are about heroes like David. From the time that we're little children, we're told in Sunday school that if we just have faith like David, we can slay the giants in our lives. Most modern devotional books and sermons reinforce this way of seeing the Bible. They amount to little more than a string of moral applications. Do this, don't do that. But as I've looked at the way in which Jesus and the apostles read the Bible, I found that although they're sensitive to the moral meaning of Scripture, they had a more fundamental question in the back of their mind. How does this passage show us Jesus Christ? How does this passage show me Jesus. They understood that the Bible is most fundamentally a book about Jesus. And because they were looking for Jesus, they saw him everywhere. We began our one-year Bible reading plan with the creation of the world and the creation of the first human beings. John saw Jesus in God's speech at creation. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all things through Jesus. Paul saw Jesus in the very first man, Adam. In Romans 5.14, Paul says that Adam was a type of Jesus Christ, the one who was to come. In Genesis, there's only three verses about this shadowy figure, Melchizedek, yet Hebrews 7 spends an entire chapter showing how Melchizedek is a type of Christ. I think what fascinates me most about that chapter is that it not only looks at those three verses in Genesis, but it mentions what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't tell us Melchizedek's genealogy, and it doesn't tell us that Melchizedek died. And in that, the inspired author of Hebrews sees a type of Christ, our eternal priest, who has no beginning or end. We could go on and on this morning looking at New Testament examples like Paul who identifies the Red Sea crossing as a type of baptism into Jesus Christ. Jude writes that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt and Jesus afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus is identified as the bronze serpent, the Passover lamb, the manna from heaven. This one always astounds me. Paul even says that Israel drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock 
was Christ. Probably my favorite example, the one I use most frequently, is that of Jonah and the whale. Every good little boy and girl learns the story of Jonah and the whale. And I've heard some good moral messages on Jonah, like don't run from God's call in your life. Do this, don't do that. But you know that every time the New Testament mentions Jonah, it points to Jonah as a sign of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that just as Jonah was three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. The church fathers took their cues from Jesus and the apostles, and they identified many more types of Christ in Scripture. I mentioned the story of David and Goliath, but the primary focus of the church throughout history has been on how David is like Jesus. It's Jesus who steps out on the battlefield as our representative and slays the giant Satan by the power of God. You and I are more like the fearful Israelites on the sideline whose victory depends entirely on the victory of our king standing out and fighting the battle on our behalf. Christ, the apostles, and the church fathers saw Jesus in all scripture because he's really there in plain sight. What a thrill it would have been to walk on the Emmaus Road with Jesus as beginning with Moses. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Beginning with Genesis and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the prophets, all the scriptures, it's almost like he wanted us to know that Jesus is everywhere. Christ is the key to unlocking your Bible reading. In the second century, Irenaeus of Lyon described the many parts of the Bible as pieces of a mosaic that when assembled properly, reveal the image of a handsome king, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The fundamental goal of the Bible reader is to gaze on the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. The fundamental goal of the Bible reader is to gaze on the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. When we consider Joseph as a type of Christ, we unlock the story's greatest meaning. In fact, there are so many correspondences between Joseph and Jesus that the Joseph story may be viewed as a lengthy allegory of Christ our Savior. The first 36 chapters of Genesis include many prophecies of the Messiah. They tell us that the seed is coming, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the one who will deliver us. But Genesis 37 through 50 give us a picture of the Messiah. They tell us what this promised seed will look like, and he will look like Joseph. Joseph was his father's beloved son, clothed in his father's many-colored coat. He was chosen from the beginning of the story to rule over everyone, including his own family. 
Joseph was a shepherd sent by his father to seek his wandering brothers, but his brothers did not receive him. They were jealous of him, hated him, and conspired to kill him. Though he was innocent and refused to give in to temptation, they sold him for the price of a few silver coins, stripped him of his robe, and threw him into a pit. He was condemned alongside two prisoners, one who was restored and one who was lost. But Joseph was quickly brought out of the pit, changed his clothes, and was exalted to the right hand of the highest power in the land being made Lord over all people and over all the land. Every knee bowed to him, for he brought salvation to both the sons of Israel and the Gentile peoples who came to him from the ends of the earth. With compassion and tears of mercy, he gave food to the hungry, life to the dying, clothes to the poor, forgiveness to his enemies, and comfort to the fearful. Who is this but Jesus, our Messiah? It was Jesus, the true Joseph, of whom the father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus was predestined to be the Lord and savior of all people. Jesus, the good shepherd, was sent by his father to seek his wandering brothers, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but they did not receive him. The Pharisees and Sadducees were jealous of his authority and his power. They hated him because he was clothed in the Father's multicolored glory, and they conspired to kill him. Though Jesus was innocent and resisted every temptation of the devil, Judas betrayed him for a few silver coins. Jesus was stripped of his robe, both his actual clothing and the robe of his flesh when he was flogged and crucified. He descended to the pit, to Sheol or Hades, the place of the dead, as scripture teaches and as we confess in the words of the Apostles' Creed. He descended to the dead. As Daryl pointed out on Wednesday night, Jesus was also condemned alongside two criminals, one who was saved, who went to be with him in paradise, and one who was lost forever. But Jesus was powerfully raised up from the pit changed into the clothing of his glorified resurrection body and was exalted to the right hand of God the Father, bringing salvation to Jew and Gentile and pouring out God's blessing on all people in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like Joseph, Christ married from among the Gentiles, uniting Jew and Gentile together as one bride in the church. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and under the earth, and to him every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are so many more points of similarity that we could explore between Jesus and Joseph but we began with one verse, Genesis 37, 9. Joseph dreams that the sun, moon, and stars would bow down to him. Now, at first, Jacob, his father, asks, shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Jacob draws the reasonable conclusion that the 11 stars are Joseph's 11 brothers, that he is the sun, and that Joseph's mother is the moon. 
And we know that as time goes on, Joseph's 11 brothers do bow down to him. We read that repeatedly. Jacob bows down to him. But one of the church fathers points out that both Rachel and Leah were dead by the time that the family arrived in Egypt. The moon never bowed down to Joseph. And that's because this prophecy was fully fulfilled in the true Joseph, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When after the resurrection, Mary, the moon, Joseph, the sun, and the 11 stars, which are the apostles, the 12 minus Judas, bowed down in worship of our Lord and Savior, the true Joseph, the Savior of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. The church fathers connected this with Psalm 148.3, which I read for our call to worship. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. This beautiful story is summarized in chapter 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. It's one of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible about God's sovereignty over evil. That even when people mean evil, God can intend good and bring good out of their evil purposes. But this verse is only fully understood in light of Jesus Christ. For although the people of Israel meant evil against Jesus, God meant it for good. To bring about the salvation of the world. Acts 4.28 says that those who condemn Christ to the cross gathered to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. The Father's beloved Son was sent to suffer, rise, and be exalted for us and for our salvation. He endured all things for your sake. And this morning, if you have sinned and need mercy, come to Jesus, your true Joseph. He will look on you with compassion and forgive you with tears of mercy. If you are hungry and need food, come to Jesus, your true Joseph. He will feed you with the bread of life, his own flesh in word and sacrament. If you feel naked and ashamed, come to Jesus, your true Joseph. He was clothed that he might clothe you with his own righteousness and with a resurrection body in the age to come. If you are fearful and doubt God's goodness towards you, come to Jesus, your true Joseph, and he will speak words of comfort and assurance to heal your hurting soul. We might ask in the style of Paul, do we nullify the moral meaning of the Joseph story by reading it in light of Christ? By no means. We establish it. We are best equipped to follow Joseph's example in our own life when we first see Joseph as a type of Christ. We are best equipped to follow Joseph's moral example in our own life when we first see Joseph as a type of Jesus Christ, the great example and pattern for me. In light of what Christ has done, we are able to see more clearly what Jesus calls us to do and to live the truly virtuous life 
by the power of his Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to stand together and confess our faith in our great Savior in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Thank you for listening to the Holy Joy Sermon Podcast. Our labors for a holy, happy church are supported by generous listeners like you. Please pray about partnering with us at holyjoys.org forward slash donate.